Chapter Two, Part Two, of the Eight Strokes of the Clock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. The Eight Strokes of the Clock by Maurice Leblanc, Chapter Two, Part Two. They went downstairs to the private room containing the telephone. The room was empty. Henin asked Gaston Dutreuil for the Aubrier's number, took down the instrument, and was put through. The maid who came to the telephone answered that Madame Aubrier had fainted, after giving way to an excess of despair, and that she was now asleep. "'Fetch her mother, please. Prince Henin speaking. It's urgent.' He handed the second receiver to Morisseau. For that matter, the voices were so distinct that Dutreuil and Hortense were able to hear every word exchanged. "'Is that you, madame?' "'Yes. Prince Renin, I believe?' "'Prince Renin. "'Oh, sir, what news have you for me? Is there any hope?' asked the old lady in a tone of entreaty. "'The inquiry is proceeding very satisfactorily,' said Renin. "'And you may hope for the best.' For the moment, I want you to give me some very important particulars. On the day of the murder, did Gaston Dutreuil come to your house? Yes, he came to fetch my daughter and myself after lunch. Did he know at that time that Monsieur Guillaume had sixty thousand francs at his place? Yes, I told him. And that Jacques Aubrier was not feeling very well and was proposing not to take his usual cycle ride but to stay at home and sleep? Yes. You are sure? Absolutely certain. And you all three went to the cinema together? Yes. And you were all sitting together? Oh, no! There was no room. He took a seat farther away. A seat where you could see him? No. But he came to you during the interval? No. We did not see him until we were going out. There is no doubt of that. None at all. Very well, madam. I will tell you the result of my efforts in an hour's time. But, above all, don't wake up Madame Aubrieux. And suppose she wakes on her own accord? Reassure her and give her confidence. Everything is going well, very well indeed. He hung up the receiver and turned to Dutreuil, laughing. Ha ha, my boy! Things are beginning to look clearer. What do you say? It was difficult to tell what these words meant or what conclusions Renin had drawn from his conversation. The silence was painful and oppressive. "'Mr. Chief Inspector, you have some of your men outside, haven't you? Two detective sergeants. It's important that they should be there. Please also ask the manager not to disturb us on any account.' And, when Morisot returned, Renin closed the door, took his stand in front of Dutreuil, and, speaking in a good-humoured but emphatic tone, said, "'It amounts to this, young man, that the lady saw nothing of you between three and five o'clock on that Sunday. That's rather a curious detail.' "'A perfectly natural detail,' Dutreuil retorted, "'and one, moreover, which proves nothing at all. "'It proves, young man, that you had a good two hours at your disposal. "'Obviously.' two hours which I spent at the cinema, or somewhere else. Dutreuil looked at him. Somewhere else. 
Yes. As you were free, you had plenty of time to go wherever you liked. To Suresne, for instance? Oh, said the young man, jesting in his turn, Suresne is a long way off. It's quite close. Hadn't you your friend Jacques Aubry's motorcycle? A fresh pause followed these words. Dutreuil had knitted his brows, as though he were trying to understand. At last he was heard to whisper, So that is what he was trying to lead up to, the brute! Henin brought down his hand on Dutreuil's shoulder. No more talk, facts! Gaston Dutreuil, you are the only person who on that day knew two essential things. First, that cousin Guillaume had sixty thousand francs in his house. Secondly, that Jacques Aubrieux was not going out. You at once saw your chance. The motorcycle was available. You slipped out during the performance. You went to Suresne. You killed cousin Guillaume. You took the sixty banknotes and left them at your rooms. And at five o'clock you went back to fetch the ladies. Dutreuil had listened with an expression at once mocking and flurried, casting an occasional glance at Inspector Morisot, as though to enlist him as a witness. The man's mad, it seemed to say. It's no use being angry with him. When Renin had finished, he began to laugh. Ah, very funny! A capital joke! So it was I whom the neighbors saw going and returning on the motorcycle? It was you, disguised in Jacques Aubrier's clothes. And it was my fingerprints that were found on the bottle in Monsieur Guillaume's pantry. The bottle had been opened by Jacques Aubrier at lunch in his own house, and it was you who took it with you to serve as evidence. Funnier and funnier, cried Dutreuil, who had the air of being frankly amused. Then I contrived the whole affair so that Jacques Aubrier might be accused of the crime. It was the safest means of not being accused yourself. Yes, but Jacques is a friend whom I have known from childhood. You're in love with his wife. The young man gave a sudden, infuriated start. You dare! What? You dare make such an infamous suggestion? I have proof of it. That's a lie. I have always respected Madeleine Aubrieux and revered her, apparently. But you're in love with her. You desire her. Don't contradict me. I have abundant proof of it. That's a lie, I tell you. You have only known me a few hours. Come, come. I've been quietly watching you for days, waiting for the moment to pounce upon you. He took the young man by the shoulders and shook him. Come, Dutreuil, confess. I hold all the proofs in my hand. I have witnesses, whom we shall meet presently at the criminal investigation department. Confess, can't you? In spite of everything, you're tortured by remorse. Remember your dismay at the restaurant when you had seen the newspaper. What? Jacques Aubrieux condemned to die. That's more than you bargained for. Penal servitude would have suited your book. But the scaffold. Jacques Aubrieux executed tomorrow an innocent man. Confess, won't you? Confess to save your own skin. On up! Bending over the other, he was trying with all his might to extort a confession from him. But Dutreuil drew himself up and coldly, with a sort of scorn in his voice, said, Sir, you are a madman. Not a word that you have said has any sense in it. All your accusations are false. What about the banknotes? Did you find them at my place, as you said you would? 
Henin, exasperated, clenched his fist in his face. Oh, you swine, I'll dish you yet, I swear I will. He drew the inspector aside. Well, what do you say to it? An arrogant rogue, isn't he? The inspector nodded his head. It may be, but all the same. So far there's no real evidence. Wait, Monsieur Morisseau, said Henin. Wait until we've had our interview with Monsieur Dujouy. For we shall see Monsieur Dujouy at the prefecture, shall we not? Yes, he'll be there at three o'clock. Well, you'll be convinced, Mr. Inspector. I tell you here and now that you will be convinced. Renin was chuckling like a man who feels certain of the course of events. Hortense, who was standing near him and was able to speak to him without being heard by the others, asked, in a low voice, You've got him, haven't you? He nodded his head in assent. Got him? I should think I have. All the same, I'm no farther forward than I was at the beginning. But this is awful. And your proofs? Not the shadow of a proof. I was hoping to trip him up. But he's kept his feet, the rascal. Still, you're certain it's he? It can't be anyone else. I had an intuition at the very outset, and I've not taken my eyes off him since. I have seen his anxiety increasing as my investigations seem to centre on him, and concern him more closely. Now I know. And he's in love with Madame Aubrieux? In logic, he's bound to be. But so far we have only hypothetical suppositions, or rather certainties which are personal to myself. We shall never intercept the guillotine with those. Ah, if we could only find the banknotes. Given the banknotes, Monsieur Dujouy would act. Without them he will laugh in my face. What then? murmured Hortense in anguished accents. He did not reply. He walked up and down the room, assuming an air of gaiety and rubbing his hands. All was going so well. It was really a treat to take up a case which, so to speak, worked itself out automatically. Suppose we went to the prefecture, Monsieur Morisseau. The chief must be there by now, and having gone so far, we may as well finish. Will Monsieur Dutruy come with us? Why not? said Dutruy, arrogantly. But, just as Renin was opening the door, there was a noise in the passage, and the manager ran up, waving his arms. Is Monsieur Dutruy still there? Monsieur Dutruy, your flat's on fire. A man outside told us. He saw it from the square. The young man's eyes lit up. For perhaps half a second his mouth was twisted by a smile, which Renin noticed. Oh, you ruffian, he cried. You've given yourself away, my beauty. It was you who set fire to the place upstairs. And now the notes are burning. He blocked his exit. Let me pass, shouted Dutrouy. There's a fire, and no one can get in, because no one else has a key. Here it is. Let me pass, damn it. Henin snatched the key from his hand, and holding him by the collar of his coat. Don't you move, my fine fellow. The game's up. You precious blackguard. Monsieur Morisseau, Will you give orders to the sergeant not to let him out of his sight, and to blow out his brains if he tries to get away? Sergeant, we rely on you. Put a bullet into him if necessary. He hurried up the stairs, followed by Hortense and the chief inspector, who was protesting rather peevishly. But I say, look here, it wasn't he who set the place on fire. How do you make out he set it on fire, seeing that he never left us? Why, he set it on fire beforehand, to be sure. How, I ask you, how? How do I know? But a fire doesn't break out like that, for no reason at all, at the very moment when a man wants to burn compromising papers. They heard a commotion upstairs. 
It was the waiters of the restaurant, trying to burst the door open. An acrid smell filled the well of the staircase. Renin reached the top floor. By your leave, friends, I have the key. He inserted it in the lock and opened the door. He was met by a gust of smoke so dense that one might well have supposed the whole floor to be ablaze. Renin at once saw that the fire had gone out of its own accord, for lack of fuel, and that there were no more flames. Monsieur Morisot, you won't let anyone come in with us, will you? An intruder might spoil everything. Bolt the door, that will be the best. He stepped into the front room, where the fire had obviously had its chief center. The furniture, the walls and the ceiling, though blackened by the smoke, had not been touched. As a matter of fact, the fire was confined to a blaze of papers, which was still burning in the middle of the room, in front of the window. Henin struck his forehead. What a fool I am! What an unspeakable ass! Why? asked the inspector. The hat-box, of course! The cardboard hat-box, which was standing on the table! That's where he hid the notes. They were there all through our search. Impossible. Why, yes, we always overlooked that particular hiding-place, the one just under our eyes, within reach of our hands. How could one imagine that a thief would leave sixty thousand francs in an open cardboard box, in which he places his hat when he comes in, with an absent-minded air? That's just the one place we don't look in. Well played, Monsieur Dutreuil. The inspector, who remained incredulous, repeated, No, no, impossible. We were with him, and he could not have started the fire himself. Everything was prepared beforehand, on the supposition that there might be an alarm. The hat-box, the tissue-paper, the bank-notes. They must all have been steeped in some inflammable liquid. He must have thrown a match, a chemical preparation, or what not, into it, as we were leaving. But we should have seen him hang it all. And then is it credible that a man who has committed a murder for the sake of sixty thousand francs should do away with the money in this way? If the hiding-place was such a good one, and it was, because we never discovered it, why this useless destruction? He got frightened, Monsieur Morisseau. Remember that his head is at stake, and he knows it. Anything rather than the guillotine. And they, the banknotes, were the only proof which we had against him. How could he have left them where they were? Morisot was flabbergasted. What? The only proof? Why, obviously. But your witnesses, your evidence, all that you were going to tell the chief, mere bluff. Well, upon my word, growled the bewildered inspector, you're a cool customer. Would you have taken action without my bluff? No. Then what more do you want? Renin stooped to stir the ashes, but there was nothing left not even those remnants of stiff paper which still retain their shape. Nothing, he said. It's queer all the same. How the deuce did he manage to set the thing alight? He stood up, looking attentively about him. Hortense had a feeling that he was making his supreme effort, and that, after this last struggle in the dark, he would either have devised his plan of victory, or admit that he was beaten. Faltering with anxiety, she asked, It's all up isn't it? No, no, he said thoughtfully. It's not all up. It was, a few seconds ago, but now there is a gleam of light, and one that gives me hope. God grant that it may be justified. We must go slowly, he said. It is only an attempt, but a fine, a very fine attempt, and it may succeed. He was silent for a moment. Then, with an amused smile and a click of the tongue, he said, 
an infernally clever fellow, that Dutroy. His trick of burning the notes, what a fertile imagination, and what coolness! A pretty dance the beggar has led me. He's a master. He fetched the broom from the kitchen, and swept a part of the ashes into the next room, returning with a hat-box of the same size and appearance as the one which had been burnt. After crumpling the tissue paper with which it was filled, he placed the hat-box on the little table, and set fire to it with a match. It burst into flames, which he extinguished when they had consumed half the cardboard and nearly all the paper. Then he took from an inner pocket of his waistcoat a bundle of banknotes and selected six, which he burned almost completely, arranging the remains and hiding the rest of the notes at the bottom of the box, among the ashes and the blackened bits of paper. Monsieur Morisot, he said, when he had done, I am asking for your assistance, for the last time. Go and fetch Dutreuil. Tell him just this. You are unmasked. The notes did not catch fire. Come with me, and bring him up here. Despite his hesitation and his fear of exceeding his instructions from the head of the detective service, the chief inspector was powerless to throw off the ascendancy which Renin had acquired over him. He left the room. Renin turned to Hortense. Do you understand my plan of battle? Yes, she said. But it is a dangerous experiment. Do you think that Dutreuil will fall into the trap? Everything depends on the state of his nerves and the degree of demoralization to which he is reduced. A surprise attack may very well do for him. Nevertheless, suppose he recognizes by some sign that the box has been changed. Oh, of course, he has a few chances in his favor. The fellow is much more cunning than I thought, and quite capable of wriggling out of the trap. On the other hand, however, how uneasy he must be, how the blood must be buzzing in his ears and obscuring his sight. No, I don't think that he will avoid the trap. He will give in. He will give in. They exchanged no more words. Henin did not move. Hortense was stirred to the very depths of her being. The life of an innocent man hung trembling in the balance. An era of judgment, a little bad luck. And twelve hours later, Jacques Aubrier would be put to death. And together, with a horrible anguish, she experienced, in spite of all, a feeling of eager curiosity. What was Prince Renin going to do? What would be the outcome of the experiment on which he was venturing? What resistance would Gaston Dutreuil offer? She lived through one of those minutes of superhuman tension, in which life becomes intensified until it reaches its utmost value. They heard footsteps on the stairs, the footsteps of men in a hurry. The sound drew nearer. They were reaching the top floor. Hortense looked at her companion. He had stood up and was listening, his features already transfigured by action. The footsteps were now echoing in the passage. Then, suddenly, he ran to the door and cried, Quick, let's make an end of it! Two or three detectives and a couple of waiters entered. He caught hold of Dutreuil in the midst of the detectives, and pulled him by the arm, gaily exclaiming, "'Well done, old man! That trick of yours with the table and the water-bottle was really splendid. A masterpiece, on my word. Only it didn't come off.' "'What do you mean? What's the matter?' mumbled Gaston Dutreuil, staggering. "'What I say, the fire burnt only half the tissue paper and the hat-box.' And, though some of the banknotes were destroyed, like the tissue paper, the others are there at the bottom. You understand? 
the long-sought notes, the great proof of the murder. They're there, where you hid them. As chance would have it, they've escaped, burning. Here, look, there are the numbers, you can check them. Oh, you're done for, done for, my beauty. The young man drew himself up stiffly. His eyelids quivered. He did not accept Renin's invitation to look. He examined neither the hat-box nor the banknotes. From the first moment, without taking the time to reflect, and before his instinct could warn him, he believed what he was told, and collapsed heavily into a chair, weeping. The surprise attack, to use Renin's expression, had succeeded. On seeing all his plans baffled, and the enemy master of his secrets, the wretched man had neither the strength nor the perspicacity necessary to defend himself. He threw up the sponge. Renin gave him no time to breathe. Capital! You're saving your head. And that's all, my good youth. Write down your confession and get it off your chest. Here's a fountain pen. The luck has been against you, I admit. It was devilishly well thought out, your trick of the last moment. You had the banknotes which were in your way, and which you wanted to destroy. Nothing simpler. You take a big, round-bellied water-bottle, and stand it on the window-sill. It acts as a burning-glass, concentrating the rays of the sun on the cardboard and tissue-paper, all nicely prepared. Ten minutes later, it bursts into flames. A splendid idea! And like all great discoveries, it came quite by chance, what? It reminds one of Newton's apple. One day, the sun passing through the water in that bottle must have set fire to a scrap of cotton or the head of a match, and, as you had the sun at your disposal just now, you said to yourself, now's the time, and stood the bottle in the right position. My congratulations, Gaston. Look, here's a sheet of paper. Write down. It was I who murdered Monsieur Guillaume. Right, I tell you. Leaning over the young man, with all his implacable force of will, he compelled him to write guiding his hand and dictating the sentences. Dutreuil, exhausted, at the end of his strength, wrote as he was told. "'Here's the confession, Mr. Chief Inspector,' said Renin. "'You will be good enough to take it to Monsieur Dujouy. This gentleman,' turning to the waiters from the restaurant, "'will, I am sure, consent to serve as witnesses.' And, seeing that Dutreuil, overwhelmed by what had happened, did not move, he gave him a shake. "'Hi, you! Look alive!' Not that you've been fool enough to confess. Make an end of the job, my gentle idiot. The other watched him, standing in front of him. Obviously, Renin continued, you're only a simpleton. The hat-box was fairly burned to ashes. So were the notes. That hat-box, my dear fellow, is a different one. And those notes belong to me. I even burned six of them to make you swallow the stunt. And you couldn't make out what had happened. What an all you must be to furnish me with evidence at the last moment, when I hadn't a single proof of my own. And such evidence! A written confession, written before witnesses! Look here, my men, if they do cut off your head, as I sincerely hope they will, upon my word, you'll have jolly well deserved it. Good-bye, Dutreuil. Downstairs in the street, Renin asked Hortense Daniel to take the car, go to Madeleine Aubrieux, and tell her what had happened. And you— asked Hortense. I have a lot to do, urgent appointments. And you deny yourself the pleasure of bringing the good news? It's one of the pleasures that pall upon one. The only pleasure that never flags is that of the fight itself. Afterwards, things cease to be interesting. She took his hand and, for a moment, held it in both her own. 
she would have liked to express all her admiration to that strange man, who seemed to do good as a sort of game, and who did it with something like genius. But she was unable to speak. All these rapid incidents had upset her. Emotion constricted her throat and brought the tears to her eyes. Heinin bowed his head, saying, Thank you. I have my reward. End of chapter 2, part 2